enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of Star Brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show was presented by Mercury Mile. Mercury Mile is fusing fashion and function for runners of all abilities, and they make it as easy and accessible as possible. You never even have to leave your home to get the best running gear. You just go to mercurymile.com, enter your sizes and preferences, and then they'll send you out a curated box of running goodies. And I'll tell you what, man. I got a new box. If you listen to the show a lot, and you know, I got a new box uh, about two weeks ago, and I'm loving it. I really am. One of the pieces that I got was a New Balance running shirt. It's super light, and it's a color that I definitely would not have picked out if I was buying online, right? It's kind of like a purplish color. Uh, it has a little wave, like a, a little texture to it, a little wavy you know, print to it. Again, I would not have picked it out if I was online. However, I didn't have to make that choice. It was sent to me, and as soon as I picked out of the box, I was like, man, I really like this shirt. And I actually did an Instagram story opening the box. I'm like, wow, I really like this color. And my daughter would like all of a sudden appear next to me, and she's like, yeah, Daddy, I like that too. A lot of you guys actually commented on that. She was giving her a little feedback there. But anyway, back to Mercury Mile. This stuff is really, really good. The best brands in the world, and you keep what you love. You send back what you don't. So I got six things in that box. Two of the things I wasn't, you know, too keen on. They were fine, but I, you know, I, I didn't need another pair of socks, so I, just, I put that in the box. And then one shirt wasn't quite long enough, so I put that back. It's actually just a little pouch, self-addressed, stamped pouch. It seals itself. Put it back in the mailbox. Done and done. And it's simple as that. Go to MercuryMile.com and use code RamblingRunner10 at checkout to save $10. So, this episode is with Greg Mackin. Greg is somebody who has really turned around his life. We are the exact same age. We both graduated high school in 1999. We're both 37 years old. And I loved hearing about Greg because he really, you know, his his life took a turn for the worse. Um, when he was a teenager, when he stopped playing sports, and as he put it, he fil- started filling his life um, with drugs and alcohol, uh, specifically alcohol, uh, most of the time. And... I'm not going to ruin the story for you, but you know there were some down some down periods there. So for 10 or 15 years, he wasn't in a great spot. He ballooned up 250 pounds. He was basically living a life that was either going to end in prison, um, in a psychiatric ward, or was just going to end, period. And he was able to turn it around. And this guy, not only did he turn it around, he turned it around in a big way, especially from a running perspective. Uh, this man is now a three-hour marathoner. Uh, he has run 124 in the half marathon. This is a guy who, in his first run um, back, again, he wasn't even sober yet, as you'll hear in this episode. You know, he, his, his first run was, can I get to the stop sign? If I do, I'll start walking. That was his first run. And now the guy is in the top 10% of runners in America. So that speaks for itself. And I think you'll love this episode as much as I loved recording it. Before we get into it, I do want to say big shout out to Megaton Coffee, the official coffee, the official fuel of the Rambling Runner podcast is twice as caffeinated as your normal brew. 
but it's still really, really good. We have it every morning here in the Chittim House. I love this stuff. And I love getting the, the uh, membership plan. You get you can basically get one, two, or four bags of coffee sent to you every month. And that's the best way to do it. Because just like Mercury Mile, you don't have to leave your home. You can do all the busy life things that you need to do and still support a brand that you know and love, Mercury Mile and Megaton Coffee. I love these guys. I look for the same reasons. Megaton Coffee, if you go onto their website, you do the membership um, you can also save by using code rambling, say $5 on your first bag of coffee. You're going to love it. And because it's twice as caffeinated, you can just have a little bit in the morning before your morning run. You're not going to have coffee sloshing around your belly, but you will have that caffeine pick me up. So check that out. Megatoncoffee.com. Thank you for listening. And here is my episode with Greg Mackin. Hello, Greg, and welcome to the rambling runner podcast. What's going on, Matt? Not much. I'm so excited to have you on. I really appreciate it. Um, I'll tell you what, man. You're somebody who I absolutely love following day to day in the running community because you're just one of those people. Man, it just seems like you are always excitable. You're always pumped up for like every day that's happening. And considering that what you've overcome in your life, it's easy to see why. But first thing, I just want to say, man, thank you. Like you're someone who like it gets me pumped up seeing what you're doing on a day to day basis. And not that everything's always like rosy and perfect, but it seems like you're always like trying to live your best life and always moving in the right direction. Oh, man, that's so nice to hear. And uh, I actually wanted to congratulate you. I love the show. I listen often. You've been killing it lately, uh, especially you had my boy Ron on a couple of weeks ago. And, man, I got such a good thrill out of uh, listening to you guys chat. So um, just excited to excited to be on here. Thanks. Ron Romano, the, the, the mayor of New York. He did not want me to call him that, but I no. loved it that, like, you were the first person to comment on the Instagram post for that episode. Like, the yeah. mayor of New York. I'm gonna like, t- the mayor I'm gonna, of Central Park. Yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to take a little credit for this. I gave him that name, the mayor of Central oh. Park. If you run, if you ever have the chance to run around Central Park with Ron Romano, every other person in the park will be yelling at him. It's, it's an amazing experience. So everybody, when you're in New York, Ron will Ron. I, I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to say that he will take all runners out there. So just, uh, just hit him up. <laughs> There you go. There you go. And that's and that's where you're running. So you're you're a New York based runner as well. You're in that area. You're killing it. And I just want to you know, we can go in a lot of different directions because I feel like you have so much in your running story that's relevant and inspiring and just really, really motivational. But let's just start. I, I know what part I love the best is this this random story you posted. I think it was like four or five months ago about your TSA photo story oh my god let's just let's just start right there yeah so um my driver's license was taken the photo was taken i don't know 12 years or so ago and my uh passport at the same time so i was i was around 250 pounds at that time um definitely not running definitely not eating what i should be eating on a daily basis and just pretty much uh you know, doing all of the wrong things, um, drinking too much, partying too much, all of that stuff. And so those photos follow me around in my day-to-day life. So when I, uh, when I was coming through, I forgot, I think I was going on a work trip, trip somewhere. I had to show my ID and the TSA agent started asking me all these questions about, 
is this you? Usually I have a manager that has to come over and, and let me through or, or confirm that it's actually me. So naturally the guy was a little bit overweight, started asking me questions. I told him how I started running, started eating cleaner, um, drinking water, not beer, this, that, and other things. So by the end of the conversation, there were about three or four people standing around there. I was like talking them into plant-based diets and, and running six miles in the morning and all this stuff. It was really, it was really a funny experience. So when you got up that morning, did you expect to turn into Rich Roll in the middle of the tournament? <laughs> I did not, but uh, he's a great inspiration for sure. Oh, yeah. I, his, when his book came out, that was literally the first book I downloaded on Audible. Oh, um, really? And I, Shoot, man. This might have been seven years ago, eight years ago. No, it must have been even earlier than that. So wow, long. So you were ago. early on to the Rich Roll train. Well, 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 that's the thing is that there were so few running related books on Audible. I was like, yeah. I don't even know who this dude is, but like, hey, I'll give it a shot. And I yeah. was like, you know, like anybody, you know, I shouldn't say like anybody, but especially that time, just with the dearth of running books. I was like, this is fantastic, man. This is great. Yeah, it's so, funny. It's funny how we come across content when we're looking for it, right? Like, I mean, the same way that I, I found your show, I found a bunch of other uh, running related either podcasts or books and like. When I first started getting into running, I didn't know much about anything other than I wanted to lose a little bit of weight. So I would I would go out and try to run to the stop sign. And once I got to the stop sign, I would I would allow myself to uh, to walk, catch my breath and then just try to run to the next stop sign. And as I developed a love for running and the sport of it and then, you know, I learned about who Meb Klefeski was. I learned about, you know, just right around that time, it was 2013, 2014 started to pick up on certain certain people like Meb and then started looking into the history of Boston and, and Bill Rogers. And so it's like all of these people that I had no idea about. And then running has opened up my world to all of these people that are just so inspiring and, and, and amazing. Rich Roll is another one. You know, it's just it's endless. It's a it's an amazing thing that we have now. Oh, it's it's, it's that's really well put. That's for sure. And I can just imagine like 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 a meat eater behind you, and and truth be told, I'm a meat eater as well. Yeah. It's like behind you being like, oh my god, look at this vegan taking up all the TSA agents, holding up the line. Like yeah, like, but you know, I can only imagine <laughs> the animosity behind you in that line. Yeah, um, yeah, that that happens. I, <laughs> you know, you know, everybody. I, I'm not one of those. I'm not. Well, first of all, I have to be. I have to be transparent here. I'm not a vegan. I. I do try to eat plant-based. Um, I still fall for a good New York cheese, cheese slice um, or 10 slices of pizza. You know, like I still have I still have my my days and my moments that I that I have to just have a slice of pizza or a grilled cheese or or whatever, some comfort food. Um, so I'm certainly not one of those people that that will judge you if you're eating meat or anything like that. But um, I, I do. I am proud of you when you skip McDonald's, when you skip those uh, drive throughs that one one day at a time it's a it's a success i know it's it was pretty funny i went i someone messaged me like because I, I posted something like i went three days without hitting a drive through and she was like yeah. i can't tell if you're being sarcastic or not but i feel <laughs> like you are i'm like i'm not being sarcastic <laughs> and i am like i'm battling here <laughs> well all right one day one day at a time it's a it's a small win there you go so at what point in your life, did you realize that you not only did you realize you would make a change? Or I should let me let's, let's put it this way: When did you first realize that you need to make a change, and when was the point that you actually started to make the change? 
Okay, so um, just in, in life in general, um, I had a I had a nor- normal childhood, great family, uh, older brother, younger sister, both great people. They now have great families themselves. Um, so I have a bunch of nieces and nephews that are amazing. And um, so I had a normal childhood uh, playing sports, loved playing outside, um, a B student, um, you know, just like I wasn't really excelling at anything, but I wasn't I was kind of a fly under the radar middle of the ground type of guy. I loved, I loved helping people. I like, I loved when people felt good and loved being kind to other people. Um, but, uh, that, so that was my childhood, just playing outside and, and kids from the neighborhood. I have a lot of great friends from there. Um, and in about fourth grade, I, in fourth grade, I found out what was in certain foods. Um, and so this was the real moment that I, that I kind of felt a little bit different that I stopped eating meat in science, in, in science class, I, one, my teacher was telling me the ingredients in a hot dog or, uh, you know, or in a burger. And I had never really put that much thought uh, in fourth grade. I had never really cared what was in the food. It tasted good. I ate it. And then he found out that, I mean, I found out what was in the certain foods. And at that point I decided to become a vegetarian. Um, that was in the mid eighties. And my mom, my mom found out that I guess I told somebody else that I was a vegetarian. My mom heard about it at a birthday party. Another mom came up to my mom and said, like, hey, is Greg a vegetarian? And my mom was like, I guess he is. He hasn't eaten his meat in a couple of weeks now. So so that was the that was the turning point for me as far as meat eating goes. I I definitely lost my way in my 20s as far as drinking too much, partying too much. Uh, not really, not really being true to my, myself as that, that fourth grader, um, was more aware of, of who I wanted to be than who I was actually in my twenties when I was drinking too much. And, um, now and let's, it, just, let's, let's just stay right there just for a second. So yeah. when you made that decision, you're in fourth grade, obviously that was a long time ago, but yeah. was it just one of those things where it just had like this ring of clarity, like, it just felt right, so you just did it. Like it, it's such a unique step to take, especially if there's no peer pressure or parental pressure. Yeah, um, I was I was an individual for sure back when I was younger. Um, I didn't follow the crowds much. Uh, I wanted to do my own thing. Um, I liked doing what I like to do. Uh, I guess I was hard headed also because if you told me one thing, maybe I would do another. And and it didn't really affect me that other people were eating meat. It was my decision that I was that I that I made, and I, I was I felt strongly about it that the animal animal products that were in what I was eating weren't desirable to me anymore, um, no matter what the taste was. And then the end of the. I didn't really know too much about the cruelty that, that goes on, um, in some, in some areas of the factory farming that, that none of that was came into play, but I did know that there were animals that were no longer living so that I could eat. And I just didn't at that point feel like it was necessary for me to do that. I do have to say though, I was not really a great vegetarian from the time from fourth grade until, um, until I actually started eating meat again in my twenties, I was not, I was a, pizza and bread and cheese type of guy it was not i was not eating bowls of bowls of bowls every night or anything like that it was really 
um, kids' foods and, you know, not the healthiest vegetarian diet for sure. Yeah, that's like, that's part of like the perception that can get lost, right? Like I knew, I knew one of my professors in college who was a vegetarian, but also his diet quality would ebb and flow. Like sometimes it was really good. And sometimes it was like crap. Yeah. Yeah. It was just really bad. And then, you know, even, even, you know, we mentioned him earlier and I we probably won't mention him a whole lot more this episode, but even Rich Roll talked about that when he first went vegetarian before he went vegan. He was like, he wasn't eating good food. He was eating just like a different kind of bad food. Yeah, for sure. It's easy to grab pastas and breads and cheese and sugar and all, all that stuff that's that's not meat, but it's and it'll fill you up, but it's not really right. Like you, you'd probably be better off eating a healthy meat diet, not meat diet, but like a healthy diet that includes meat versus like a really bad vegetarian. Oh diet. yeah, for sure. If I if I were to eat, yeah, I mean. A piece of grilled chicken, your body's going to accept that better than it is a, a, like four slices of pizza. But um, it just wasn't that. I mean, I was I was more inclined to eat the pizza still at that point. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So so when you got into your your twenties, Greg, you know, you mentioned it a couple times earlier that you kind of you, you you your diet switched and just your lifestyle took a very different turn. What precipitated that? Yeah. So I was always into sports. Um, every day after school, I would come come home and play baseball or uh or soccer or football in the backyard with my group of friends that I grew up with like like I mentioned before we were all very close and we would play sports until the sun went down manhunt when the sun went down and it was just non-stop playing and I played on some um I played on a competitive baseball team until I was like until high school and then I played um on travel soccer pretty competitive teams until I was about 16 or 17 years old and once those uh, once those sports teams died down, and I was no longer I was no longer playing the sports. I, I stopped playing soccer. I think junior year in high school, and all of those feelings, all of the all of the moments of joy that I got from playing sports were now gone. And I it, it took me a while to put this together, put two and two together with this. That but the minute that I stopped playing those sports was a crucial time in my life. When you're 16, 17 years old kids start experimenting with, with drugs and alcohol. And then, um, other things become priorities in your life other than, other than sports and other than running around the backyard or riding your bike around, you know, you're now driving a car, you're, you're running around doing, doing, uh, high school things, wanting, wanting to be more grown up than you are at that time. Um, so I was replacing the feeling that I had, that I would get from playing soccer or, or scoring a goal or saving a goal or hitting or hitting a baseball or turning a double play those feelings the feelings and emotions that i had from from those highs were quickly replaced with the highs of drugs and alcohol now how did losing sports i shouldn't say losing um but just kind of not being a part of the sports scene or athletic scene like you had been how did that affect you socially like, did you, do you have a different group of friends? Did you just did, you kind of talked before that you kind of can go to beat of your own drum? Like when you, you, you also talked about how when you were a kid, you know, being outside and being active was also part and parcel with being social with the other kids in the neighborhood. Like, did you have a, did you have a turn in your social life once sports ended? You know what? I've had really close friends. Um, I've, I've had, I've had a best friend that I actually grew up in the house next to. 
uh, Robbie, he, he and I grew up, to, we did everything together from the time we were three years old until um, I was the best man in his wedding last summer. So we still do everything together. Um, he's very athletic. He he never really went down the path of addiction with me, but he was always rooting for me to get out of it. And he, he was actually the first person at the time that I started running um, and I just wanted to get to the stop sign at the end of the block. That first day, it was a cold winter afternoon. I put on some old sweatpants and, and started to head up towards the stop sign. And he said that he saw me outside of that window of his parents' house. I was at my parents' house at the time, and he was at home visiting his parents. He looked out the window and saw me going up the block and just and, and in his mind started rooting for me just to get up there. Because he knew the change. He knew at that point something that I didn't know, that I was trying to make a major change. I wasn't aware of that. I just wanted to lose some weight or, or feel better. And he saw something in me that I didn't see and he was rooting for me out that window. So, um, so my, my groups of friends didn't really change, but, um, you know, the sock, the kids on the soccer team, I stayed close with, I stayed close with some of them. I'm still very close with some of them. Some of them probably moved away from me. And at the time I didn't realize why they may have been doing that. I thought it might've been just a natural, you know, separation because we're no play we're not playing together anymore and stuff like that. But I'm sure that they knew. Um, and there was a reason on their end more than I was aware of at the time. Right. Right. And I can see how that's something that with hindsight is easy to kind of pick out, especially if they weren't going in some of the same just social paths that you were. At that yeah. Point. Yeah. And, you know, I could, and then I found the, I found the people that I wanted to hang out with that were doing the things that I was doing. And it, it so it felt natural that I was with the people that were also doing the, doing the uh, drinking during the day and, and, you know, just the, you know, the knucklehead stuff that, um, I took too far and some of the other people were just being knuckleheads in the moment. Right. And w when did you start to have a shift in your own mind of, it kind of going from like, Hey, this is novel, exciting, adventurous, fun, um, to like, Hey, this is, you know, there's, 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 this is a lot of negativity as opposed to positivity. When did, when did that start to shift in you? Yeah. So I went to, um, so from high school, I went to Fordham university. Um, I started, I started at Fordham. I lived on campus. Um, and, and Fordham is just out is just north of Manhattan for yeah, people who aren't aware. Right. So I grew up grew up in New Rochelle, which is just uh which is just north of the Bronx. And Fordham is in the Bronx and then and then uh Manhattan is a little bit south of that. So uh, wait, what what high school did you go to? I went to New Rochelle High School. Oh ho ho. Home of home of Ray Rice and um and uh what is his name? Nick McDermott. That's uh, or Jeff McDermott, sorry. Uh, I'm not sure about Jeff McDermott, I, but definitely Ray Rice. Yeah, because they they were actually on the same football team, and then Ray Rice obviously, you know, went, you know, went to the pros. Jeff McDermott was the quarterback on that team, and then became a starting power forward for the Providence College Friars. Wow, that's amazing. I have a my, one of my cousins actually went to Providence. Also, I was going to talk to you about that, but oh, offline, offline. Um, yeah. So yeah, Ray was Ray was there a couple years after me um i think you and i are the same age matt actually both graduated in 99 right right yeah that's exactly right yeah 
So we're the same age. Um, Ray was a little after me, and Ray, I wasn't aware. I knew Nourishell was doing well in football at that time, but um, I was I was doing my own thing. I wasn't really paying that close attention until he got to the NFL, and that was that was pretty exciting for everybody. Right. All right. So you so, you, so I cut you off there for a random Matt Chittum flashback. I apologize. All right. So you were know, at any, Fordham as a freshman. Yeah. So anything Nourishell is always good. Um, <laughs> yeah. I. Uh, yeah, so I was at Fordham, and I was a freshman, and I realized quickly, by that time, I was a daily drinker, um, and when I was, I realized quickly that there were some people that partied, and then there were some people uh, that, some people that partied, but partied when it was appropriate times to party, and I was constantly looking for somebody to go out. I didn't understand why people weren't going out Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday nights, Um we were in college and I thought college was a party. That's, that's what I always thought of. I didn't ever think that it was going to be hard work. I thought I'd be able to just skate by with bees again. Like I always had, you know, not putting in a ton of work and just getting by. And I thought that at the, I thought I had this idea that things were just handed to you at that point. I was so, I was so lost that I thought that you go to college, you get bees, you get a, you you graduate you get a house a, a family a car you, you know it was just a I, I was lost so i i had the there there was there was not much clarity or honesty or truth to what life is really like at that point uh to be fair i had a very i had a very similar view uh, when yeah. i went to college so we just mentioned we're the same age uh so i graduated from in 99 as well I actually went to a school not far from where you went to school. I went to Vassar College up in Poughkeepsie. And, oh, wow. And I had the same experience. I, you know, I was, I'm in school and I was just kind of like, whatever, everything's good. I didn't like, again, this is, this probably speaks to a certain level of privilege, but I didn't feel like this immense need to go out and like, you know, like take life by the balls. You know what I mean? Like, it was just kind of like, oh, just laissez-faire approach and everything will just work out. And I definitely look back now at my college days. I'm like, oh my gosh, if I could do things different, I would have done everything different. Oh yeah, same with me. Thank God I don't have to go back and redo it all over. It was a ton. Of, <laughs> it was a ton of work and a lot more years than it needed to be. And uh, I'm, I, I don't want to ever have to do that again. But but if I were to do it again, I would hope that it would. Uh, I would have a different result while being there and a different outcome. So when you when you look back now with hindsight. Do you feel like there was some p- part of your burgeoning alcoholism, um, you know, in your early years at Fordham that was part genetic? Um, you know, it's really tough to say. Um, I don't have anybody in my family that is that is an alcoholic and um, recovering in the rooms. Um, I didn't grow around. I didn't grow up around alcoholism. Um, and I don't really know everybody's history, I'm sure. But that being said, I know, I know from just from what I learned in rehab, from, from what I hear in meetings, um, and just from studying, studying the disease on my own, because, because I have this thing called alcoholism, I wanted to know about it. And I know that it is genetic. Um, there isn't, I, I certainly can't point a finger at a direct line of alcoholism though. No. Right. Because it sounds like it sounds like the, the way you framed it wasn't a whole lot different than how a lot of other people would have started 
similar experiences at that time of their life. But it sounds, it sounds like for you, it escalated a lot quicker than it may have for others. Yeah. And I think that goes back to filling the void of the, I, I had such great highs playing sports. And then when those were gone, I was just, just filling that void. You know, I was just, I just wanted more and more. And um, when you're not succeeding at something and then you can take a drug or an, or some alcohol and it gives you the feeling of success. That's it's a powerful thing, and it's a it, it's almost like it's almost like you're cheating. You're you're cheating yourself, right? Like you're getting all of the positive feedback from the from the chemical reactions of the drugs and the alcohol. You're getting that feeling of triumph and success, but you're really not working for it. You're not doing anything to deserve to deserve that. You're just filling your body and tricking your mind into thinking. And feeling good and thinking that it's that that you're that you're doing something positive because you're 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 you feel so good when you're in that moment, you know. And then when you come down from that and you wake up the next day, um, for me, I just wanted that feeling all the time. Um, like I, in AA, they say if if I wasn't an alcoholic, I would drink every day. You know, it's like that's the that's the way we feel when we're not drinking. We don't understand people that want to just have a, a glass of wine or a, or a drink like a gentleman at, in the evening. That's like, that doesn't make sense to the way that we're wired. Right. That's interesting. That makes a lot of sense. And at the same time, it's also interesting to me how like you, you, you basically substituted this for athletics, which is like basically the opposite. Right. Like, and in some ways it gives you the same exact feeling in other ways, instead of maximizing your body's potential and truly trying to achieve things with it, you're, you know, destroying your body in right. a sense. Yeah. So, as, so, so as you were progressing downward in that, in that spiral, so to speak, were you fully aware of how your body was changing and how you were becoming less athletic. And obviously you were putting on weight and all of that stuff. Like, did you just turn a blind eye to it or did, was it something that you just didn't focus on? So you were able to kind of disassociate from, you know, it was strange because I didn't, I put on, I put on weight pretty quickly um, when I started drinking excessively and started eating meat again. Um, so that was, there was one part that, about going back to eating meat. I, I was, I was at Fordham one day, I smelled some bacon or something. I hadn't eaten meat since fourth grade and I was drinking and, um, my, my, uh, my sense of smell tricked me for a moment. So I, I was like, that bacon smells good. I want that. And that led me down a path of eating meat and drinking for another 10 years. And while I was eating meat again, it's the same thing as uh, about eating vegan like i'm sure i could have eaten a healthy meat diet but instead i was eating grilled cheese with bacon and uh and fried foods and all all of the all of the wrong things um that you could possibly do i was doing so i put on weight pretty aggressively from i think 2001 until 2005 and i didn't really even notice that it was happening as quickly as it was i thought i was getting a little bit bigger but not i didn't i didn't notice i wasn't fully aware of it until um, I was driving through one of the neighborhoods in Nourishell and I rolled down my window. I saw some kids I went to high school with and they quickly yelled at me, yo, Mac, what happened? You got fat. And I was like, oh, I was like, damn. I was like, oh, wow. I'm the fat guy now. I didn't, it never, you know, I always thought if I had a new pair of sneakers on and, and, a, and a nice sweatshirt or a nice 
button down that I looked good. Um, the appearance was about my clothes more than anything else at that time. And then it, it hit me that, wow, I, I am fat. I am not only that it's one thing to be overweight, but I was just unhealthy and I knew it. And, um, but even that at that point in my life, it wasn't enough to, to make me change. I'd come to terms with the fact that I was drinking every day. I was, I was an alcoholic. I, I, at, even at some point in my life, I realized, I realized that I would be at the path I was going down. I would probably not have a job, not be successful, not possibly not have a house when I got older. Um, alcoholism and just the bad lifestyle, unhealthy lifestyle was going to take me down. And I was, I, I was accepting of that because I didn't know how to get out of the situation that I was in. It got really dark really quickly. And I, I didn't know that there was a solution. I didn't know that people got better from this. I just thought this was my life and I'm going to, I'm going to live my life and wherever it takes me, it takes me and I have no control over it anyway. So let's, I was just, I was just going down the road. That's so interesting. Cause I, I can't, Again, as an outsider, it's so hard for me to picture that feeling of not know, not believing that you could that you have any control over it. Not 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 in terms of like, obviously it is it's it's monster inside of you. I not not that part. I certainly understand how that can feel like you can't control it. It's so interesting to me that you you couldn't you couldn't think of anybody, or in that moment or those moments you couldn't think of like how other people have come back from alcoholism and lived a successful life or like just the thought of AA or things like that, yeah, like that, 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 that was so far away that you just felt like that was an impossibility. Yeah. You know what? At that point in my life, I didn't know anybody that, that got sober. Um, it wasn't a thing. Like I said, there wasn't somebody in my family that, that I could look up to that, that I could say, Oh, he's done it before he went down a dark path and he's, and now he's successful. Um, there weren't podcasts, like there weren't podcasts out there. There wasn't, I thought AA was just somewhere to go to get the heat off or when you got arrested and they told you you have to go there for 180 days or whatever. You know, I always thought that it was a punishment and the people going to those meetings have got gotten caught and now they have to serve their time at putting on a good face. But I didn't know at that point. Mm. Um, I didn't know. I didn't, there were no, there were no success stories in my life that, that I knew of that were, that I could look towards. It wasn't until my first AA meeting that I went to, I went there in support of one of my, my other um, good buddies um, who's sober now, a marathoner now and doing amazing things with CrossFit. And he's, he's healthy. He lost a ton of weight. Also, I went to, I went with him because he was struggling with, um, with addiction and I was going there to support him and give him a ride. And I, and I got there and I met back up with somebody uh, who who became my sponsor later on, who I hadn't seen since high school. And he told me he had two years sober. And I knew him when he was, I knew him in high school and he was a maniac. And I saw, I saw the progress. I saw a different person and it inspired me. And that was when it started to click that maybe, maybe there is a solution to this. Maybe there's, maybe there's something true about these meetings and it's not just people that are, that are here because they're, they're court mandated to be here. One last thing uh, before we talk about AA and your 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 path towards sobriety is it what was what did it feel like for you while you were still drinking where 
it had turned from this is something I enjoy to then, like you just said, that you were aware that you were an alcoholic. Yeah. What What did drinking feel like when you would become when you were living with that awareness? Um, it was dishonest. Um, I wasn't being honest with anybody around me. It was there was a ton of shame and guilt because I had to continue to feed the addiction and and get up every morning and drink or um, drink to stop the shakes, um, drink to drink to get up and go to work. And so it was just dishonesty, um, shame. And, you know, my mom and my dad were, are my biggest supporters and they, they have, they have done every, they have done their best with me. I gave them, I gave them quite a hand to play, but it was, they, they did their, me and they always supported me. Um, and I just was full of shame and hiding, hiding it from everybody because, First of all, it was something that it was all I knew at the time. Um, it gave me comfort and I and I couldn't break it on my own. There were days that I didn't want to drink. And by, by lunch, I'd be stopping at the liquor store just to get a, a small a small bottle to hold me over. I would walk around with a water bottle full of vodka um, in my pocket just as as like a safety blanket. Like a if I have this with me, I can I can calm the shakes i can grow i can i can uh get rid of the anxiety and 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 just move throughout the day so it got it got to that it got that bad that it was just mostly shame and guilt and and dishonesty and hiding stuff hiding everything so when did you start going to aa on your own after that first experience with your pal yeah, so it was still a couple of months. I, I had a, I had some more suffering to do before I got I made it into the rooms, um, and so I started uh, I started dipping my toes in to AA with him, supporting him. He didn't have a ride to meeting, so I'd go with him here and there. And then I, like I said, I saw I saw the guy who who eventually became my sponsor, and he um, and he was he was telling me. I, I said, oh, I don't know if I belong here. And he looked me right in the eye and he goes, and again, he hadn't seen me in years. Maybe he heard stories or something. He said, oh, you're in the right place. You you belong here. You're, you're here. You're here for a reason. And then a couple months later, I had a couple of, um, I had some, I had some really rough, rough patches and, and made some bad decisions. And I could tell that it was, my life was quickly quickly going down the wrong road and so for 10 years i kind of managed it without doing anything too stupid or too i was skating by i was flying under the radar i had this alcoholism i had this addiction that i couldn't that i that i could kind of hide it got to the point where i was no longer hiding it and it was just it was going to end in it was it's so cliche to say but there was no doubt in my mind it was going to end in jail or um death or a psych ward there was whatever whatever path it was going to go down it was going to be it was going to be heartbreaking it was going to be heartbreaking to my mom and um so i was i was 30 years old and i had a couple of these incidents that were just like horrific scary thank god i never hurt anybody but it was just a scary scary time and i was i was causing so much pain um to everybody around me and eventually one of my good buddies that actually I was at his wedding 
I was at his wedding. He was one of the guys that I grew up playing soccer with and stayed close with. And I realized the day afterwards that like this is out of control. I left his wedding in search for a, a in search to get more alcohol and, and drugs or whatever I was doing. I left the wedding. It just got really ugly really quickly in there. And um, I realized that this was bad. And at that same point, my, I had just missed Thanksgiving. My parents had 30 people over our house for Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, I was in my room blacked out and passed out the entire time. I don't think I saw anybody the whole time. I have no idea what actually happened there, what the conversation was there, but it was really ugly. And um, thank God for my sister-in-law. She told me, which was a really hard thing for me to hear at the time. And I was, I was really mad and really upset by it. And she told me that I would no longer be able to see my nephews because they didn't know which version of me that they were going to get when I came around. And as much as that broke my heart, it was exactly what I needed to hear in the moment. And that's a really hard conversation for a loved one to have with another loved one. Yeah, I'm sure that it was not easy for her to say, but it was, it was what, it was what needed to be said because yeah. the, I mean, it, it, it takes, and it takes courage, right? Because you know, she doesn't know how you're going to react to that. Right. I'm sure she was weighing it for weeks. Like, all right, I say this. And then what happens? He might like cut us off and be like, well then screw you. I'll never talk to you again. You know? And then it's like this irreparable damage. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's how the conversation actually went. You know, it was, it was heated. It wasn't happy. Nobody liked what was going on. Um, but it was a moment of honesty that, that I, I will always appreciate that conversation as hard as it was for her. Um, they have always gone out of my way to make sure that I had the best opportunities at, at that time they had, they offered for me to move down to that, to where they live in the DC area. I lived with them for a few weeks trying to just like thinking that if I leave New York, that it might be, it might be just a location thing. And if I leave New York, I could get my stuff together down there. And so they offered me their basement and um, I stayed out, I stayed in their basement for a few, for a few weeks. And I mean, that's when it really, that she could really tell at that point that I had been, that I was so far gone that the conversation needed to be had. No, absolutely. So how long after you got sober? So you, you, you say you're sober since, uh, since a certain date, how long after you got sober, did you have that, 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 you know, that run on that cold night down to the stop sign? Okay. So this was, this was the strangest thing about it was, I started running before I got sober. So it was hey Feb- now. Yeah. So it was, it was February of 2011 where I took that first run to the stop sign. And, um, it was November of 2011 that I, that I checked myself into rehab. Oh, so, so a significant amount of time. Yeah. So when, when I was, when I started running in that, in that, on that February afternoon, I just thought that I needed to do something to get better. If I lost weight, everything would be better. If I felt better about the way I looked, things would get better. I'd be able to hold a job. I'd be able to get out of bed. I didn't, at that point, I wasn't ready to admit to myself that alcohol, knowing that I I knew the whole time that alcohol was the problem, but I wasn't ready to give it up yet. So I just thought if I made some minor improvements in other areas of my life, I'd feel better. And one of my cousins challenged me at that time. Um, she was running a lot 
um, she was running uh, half marathons and marathons and she challenged me to run a half marathon in 2011. So, um, she knew she was a soccer player growing up. She knew I was, she knew my athletic history. And so she challenged me and I, um, I took the challenge. My other cousin and I trained for it. We ran the Hamptons half marathon in September of 2011. I ran a two twenty five. I swore as I crossed the finish line that I never was going to run ever again. That was miserable. Uh, we walked, we ran, walked the whole thing, but it was a, it was a great feeling of accomplishment. It was what I was missing that whole time when I wasn't playing sports. Um, it was just really a lot. It was a lot harder than anything I had done in 15 years. So I was, so really, you, I was ready to quit, but. So do you think that you needed to do the running or athletic endeavor in order to follow through on quitting alcohol? I, I don't know if I needed to attempt to quit alcohol and to, to get help. I think that I would have done that. I think that that was coming either way. Um, I was, I was going to, it was either going to end in tragedy or I was going to get help. Right. So that was, that Mm -hmm. was happening either way. But I think to have success in uh, in sobriety, the, for me running and, and being healthy and, uh, athletics, they go hand in hand. So when I was in, when I went to rehab in that November of 2011, it was, uh, we could, we could go to the gym twice a week, I think. And those moments, I cherished those moments and we weren't allowed to run around the campus of the, or the facility, but we could walk around the facility if, as long as we had like a group with us as long as there was a group of us that we could walk together. So those moments outside in the mountains of Pennsylvania and then on the treadmill, those were the moments that I, I felt the clearest and that this I'm, I'm on a path to not only get better um, as far as healing my mind, um, but also to just really get better as a, as a person and just be a full, a full human that has goals and, and, uh, and, appreciates and values my own life so the two the two go hand in hand in my my sobriety i feel it would be a lot harder if i didn't have the discipline of running to go hand in hand with it and i saw in the feature story that you did in runner's world that you basically now i'm paraphrasing here you basically said that for you there's a direct correlation between physical and mental health oh yeah it's um I mean, just the clarity that it gives you, the, the moments, the moments to yourself that you get to reflect on your life. And when I go out running early in the morning, I'll often go out at 5 a.m. when it's dark and I'm, I'm out there alone um, in the cold winters of New York. And it's the most peaceful, as hard as it is to get up. And, and there are days that you just don't want to do it. And I, a lot of days that you don't want to do it, you, you're getting dressed in the dark and running outside in the dark. And you're like, what am I, what am I doing? And then there's usually a moment that is, whether it's during the run or immediately after the run, that you just feel clear and you feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm taking care of myself. I'm giving myself the time for myself. Um, if I can't take care of myself, I can't take care of anybody else. So I need to take care of my myself first. Um, as selfish as that may sound, I don't actually think it's selfish because if I'm not being the best version of myself, if I'm not constantly trying to improve, then I can't be the best version of 
me towards the people that I love. No, and you're a parent. You know this. Your stepdaughter's seven, uh, and you know she's been a part of your life. Um, you know for the for the better part of her life. And yeah. and that's the thing is that you you know it's one hundred percent true. It does feel selfish in the moment and at times because you know that you know if you go for a run while your family's doing something or when your you know significant other is you know handling something and it'd be easier if you were there <laughs> during it. You know there there you know. It's easy to say, I shouldn't do this because X, Y, Z. And you can basically say, see, by passing on this run or this trip to the gym or whatever activity you're contemplating, you can almost paint it as like this, this like act of altruism. Yeah. See, it's like, you see, I'm not going for a run because I'm out here helping you. Yeah. The problem with that is that there's always more you could be doing. So if you go with that line of thinking, you'll never go for another run again for the rest of your life because there can, there's always more that you can be doing for other people. Whereas if you prioritize yourself first, then it gives you the wiggle room to then, you know, at least get one thing done and then, and then do the best you can with the other side. For sure. And my, my fiance is super supportive of my running. She, um, she's my biggest fan at my races. She makes these great signs for me. She, um, she, she irons on she irons irons on custom logos for me onto my onto my jerseys and stuff like that. So she's she's the best support, and she always encourages me to go for a run. Um, that being said, I do try to do it as invisibly as possible. I want to get up before they're awake in the morning, get out, get it over with, come back so that I can get ready and go go to work or get the run over with, get my long run over with when my stepdaughter is either with her dad. So it's not like um, I'm not taking my time away from her that I could be focusing on either playing with her or making sure she's eating her meals and getting her teeth brushed and going to bed. Um, so I do, I do try to do it as invisibly as possible. That being said, it's hard to do that when you, when you're training for a marathon and, uh, your Sunday long run calls for 24 miles. Or, yeah, dude. You know, so <laughs> you can't get all that done before the sun comes up. Yeah, so that so that's tough. Um, I'm sure that's tough on my fiance. Thank God that she is super supportive. Again, she's she's the best with that. Um, but yeah, and and also, <laughs> it also when when the trips like uh, our vacations become focused on a race that I'm doing, <laughs> I I often find these races that I we can make a. I'm like, hey, do you want to go to do you want to go to Rhinebeck? Do you want to go upstate New York for the weekend? And then it's like, there's a marathon on Saturday, so we'll go. For Dude, it. nobody <laughs> wants to go to Rhinebeck for the weekend. I've been to Rhinebeck. No one wants to go there for the oh, weekend. Oh man, the Hudson Valley is beautiful right now. It's 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 growing. There's a lot there's a lot going on up there. You'd be surprised. I had no idea until two weeks ago when I ran that marathon. But Dude, we, people we, go we to Rhinebeck to look at the leaves, and then uh, 40 minutes later, they're like, all right, I'm good. <laughs> well, I I don't I guess. You know, I guess that is kind of what we did because I went up and ran the marathon and came right home. <laughs> I know you're, you're coming home and you're like, wait, should we stop at FDR's presidential <laughs> library in Hyde Park? I mean, what are we doing here? Um, all right. So so let's go. Let's talk about that run because the run to the corner, right? That cold winter night, it's February. You're mm-hmm. bundled up. It's, you know, you're in New Rochelle, New York. You know, so you're right along the water there. And when you're doing this run, how much of you is excited 
that you're trying something new that you haven't done in a very long time versus how much of you is like, this is embarrassing. I have to literally stop at the corner to walk. Um, it was, it was a little bit of both. Um, I was, I was embarrassed. I didn't want anybody to see me. That's for sure. I had on a, I had on my a baggy pair of sweatpants, an old pair of like Air Max 97s that were not running shoes, but they're, they're labeled running shoes. But if you do any mileage, you're not going to be wanting to wear Air Maxes probably. Um, this is so funny because you can just imagine if you saw your next door neighbor like dressing up like this, you'd be like, you're not fooling anyone, dude. I, I'm your next door neighbor. I know exactly who you are. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wasn't fooling him for sure. But I had my hood on and I, I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want to be seen for sure. But at that point, I did want to change. I knew I was losing. I was losing all of the meaningful relationships in my life due to alcoholism. And, you know, I also blamed um I blamed failed relationships on the way I looked or I, I had no, I didn't really have as much um, confidence in myself because of the way I looked and I just felt poorly. So I needed to do something to make myself feel better. So I was, I, I really wanted to change. Um, mostly I wanted to change the way I looked. If we're being honest, it wasn't really, I, I wasn't really doing the, the work on the inside yet. And um, I, I just, I just wanted to change. But at the same time, I was I was embarrassed. I did a lot of trail running. Uh, there there are a few small trails in the area, um, just running through the woods because I didn't want to be seen on the public roads. Thinking that you know, I thought people cared. I thought that people would would <laughs> that it would be a joke to people if they saw me running after 15 years of running around town, um, being uh, at the bars and a lunatic or whatever whatever my personality or or whatever whatever I was for that time of craziness, I thought that people would be judging me for actually trying to improve my life. So I would, I would do a lot of trail running. I do a lot of running with my hood on. I didn't let a ton of people know in case I failed that in case I didn't continue this. And I, I was right back at the same place the following year. Um, I was doing it under the radar and just, just motivated to change. But also I didn't really need to tell everybody what I was doing. Right. No, that makes sense. So, all right. So your half marathon happens, happens the Hamptons half marathon and then, or Hampton half marathon that happens. And then what, about a month, six weeks later, um, is when your sobriety starts. Yeah. And then what, what did your training look like from then? Did, did it, was it a slow linear growth or did it just really start to kick into gear at some point? Um, so I continued, once I got out of rehab, I, I was, I really knew I came out of rehab super motivated to be a complete opposite person of who I was before I went in. Um, you know, that George Costanza, um, episode when he, when he walks in, he has to do everything. He walks into the diner and does everything different because his oh, life has not. Yeah. So that, <laughs> that was, that was who I was. I, instead of ordering chicken salad, it was tuna salad the way, you know, ch ch he, um, tuna salad on rye. I always order chicken salad, whatever, whatever that line is. I needed to do the exact opposite of everything that I was doing up until that point in my life. So I came out of rehab super motivated um, to just be be the fourth grade version of me, the kind uh, the kind athletic boy that I that I really was before I was lost into drugs, alcoholism, and uh, and eating meat again. Um, and I started training. Um, I started training for 
a triathlon that was going to be in uh, June, I think June of 2012. I quickly learned after that triathlon that I really need to learn how to swim before I do another triathlon. So I, I just I, pro I, pro tip pro tip from Greg yeah learn how to swim before the triathlon yeah before you hop, <laughs> before you jump into the Hudson River find figure out how to actually swim more than just like a casual uh, recreational swimmer um yeah so I, I realized after that that I running was what I enjoyed the most out of uh, that it's really what I got the most out of and I enjoyed and I wasn't going to drown if I was running so I started signing up for all of these New York Roadrunner events. I didn't I didn't know of any other events at the time. I didn't know how big the running community is um at that time. Um Instagram and and all of these running communities are so beautiful now. It's like so you 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 can connect with people, like-minded people. Um but at that time I wasn't I didn't know that these that these little pockets of of run clubs and stuff like that existed so i was just signing up for every new york roadrunners event 5k 10k half marathon it didn't matter um and i was just running to again make myself feel better i loved the way that it made me feel after i finished the run i knew that i was being i was being honest to myself and true to myself by getting those miles in and and then setting a goal and going after that goal and uh yeah so so you were doing goals so you're doing goals right away it wasn't just about like feeling good mentally you know mentally physically and emotionally is that you you immediately kicked back into like your old athletic stuff and had goals yeah um the goals change uh the goals were constantly changing so whether it was pushing myself to go an extra mile um each each week kicking up the the mileage or um or picking a, a higher mileage race than I had done before. If I had done, say, say I did the um, Queens 10K or something, I wanted to find a half marathon. Staten Island half marathon is coming up. Okay, I think I can train for that. Um, so it was, it was, it wasn't always about speed and pace and and uh, and that those sort of goals, but it was always a goal of maybe I can do a little bit more. And but my one, my one main rule that I, that I always wanted to keep to myself was that there always has to be a race on the calendar. So, Interesting. so if I saw, like I said, the Queens 10 K was in June or whatever month it falls in, I think it's June that I would, I would need something it, sometime in the future. It didn't need to be next month. It didn't need to be six months, whatever it was, there had to be a race that I was on my mind that would hold me accountable to not thinking that I can just take two weeks off because two weeks becomes three weeks and I know how I am. I know that if I don't have something that that's pressing me, I can f- easily fall into a pattern of laziness. And, you know, it, it, addiction is addiction. I can be addicted to, I can get addicted to anything. So if I get addicted to the couch and I get addicted to potato chips and I get, you know, it's just, I don't know, I, man, they're vegetarian. You'll be fine. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but so I, I always needed that race on the calendar. So that, yeah. so that yeah. I could have something to look forward to and something to make sure that I didn't fall, uh, didn't go too far off the rails. I loved, I loved how you were setting goals because that was something that worried me. Um, right when you're like immediately again, I know the end of the story. I don't know why I got worried, <laughs> but I like when you immediately <laughs> said like I want to make sure I, I was very goal oriented because I know personally that. There's been times in my life that my goals and lack of ability at times to reach those goals have put me 
in a funk or led to a depressive period. And it's because those time those goals were usually time based and they were very much stretch goals, even if I didn't view them as stretch goals in the moment. But it seems like you set goals in a way that that wouldn't really led to that sort of backsliding. Yeah, I mean, I'm Boston. Boston Marathon, the Boston Marathon and the goal to qualify for that, that didn't hit my radar until there were clear indications that that's a possibility, you know, mm-hmm. as I got, as I got better. I mean, it, it's, it's great. It would have been great to say in 2011, when I couldn't run up to the stop sign, couldn't run past that stop sign that one day I wanted to run the Boston Marathon and that's what made me get there. But it wasn't, it was just getting through the day and feeling good and, and, getting to that next point um you know the the long term goals they're just a combination of a bunch of small of short term goals added up right and and what are some of the things that you learned in AA that you've been able to apply to make yourself a better runner because I'll tell you what man you're one heck of a runner you're a 3 hour marathoner you ran the New York City half this spring at 124 i mean you are you are you know in the top 5 10% of your age class in america in running which is amazing considering not too long ago you weighed 250 pounds and couldn't run through the stop sign <laughs> it's so you know obviously you had some inherent ability right like you didn't have you know you had a body that that was capable of this the whole time Right. But once you have that minimum standard of physical genetic capability, what about AA in the process of getting sober? Were you able to translate to your athletic life? So within the first 90 days of AA, it's highly suggested that you go to 90 meetings in 90 days. So once once you're out of rehab, they usually in rehab, they don't even they don't even tell you about this because they don't want to scare you away. So you go get out of rehab, they tell you to go to a meeting your first day. That's the first step is to, is getting to a meeting on your own. You're no longer in a facility. Um, then you get to the meeting. They suggest that you talk to people there. Uh, luckily, luckily the guy that I saw at the meetings a few months before that, that told me, uh, that, I, that I was in the right place. He agreed to be my sponsor right off the bat. And he told me, all right, this is what we do. We go the first 90 days, you go to 90 meetings. There's no excuses. That's what you do. Um, and being who I am, I have built in excuses for everything. It's just the way, just the way that I am. If I, if I don't want to do something, it's very easy for me to natural, naturally figure out a way that I don't have to do it or just skate by doing the bare minimum. Um, but there's no fooling. There's no fooling yourself when it comes to, your life and, and your sobriety. It's, it's life or death. So he told me 90 meetings in 90 days. So you start to, within those 90, 90 days, some, some magical stuff happens and you start to realize that you can be, um, reliable and you can show up for yourself. And, um, it's just, I, I know that I can show up to life now because of, because I could do 90 meetings in 90 days. I could do 91. I could, I could go to the, I could go to the gym for the next five days, or I could go for, I could go for a run for the next week. And you can put together a streak and you can be accountable and dependable. And, and 
there's so much that you can do as a human being when you start to believe that you're capable of just little successes. You can just just pile one small success on top of the next. So that I think that just just showing up to life was uh, and proving to myself that I could do that was was the biggest lesson that I learned. Yeah, and that's a that's a big one, right? I mean, the, I've heard there's a great line. I'm trying to remember who said it. Um, is that the best ability is availability? <laughs> you know, it's like being just go, just going and doing it is the best ability that you have. You know, sometimes it can be said like in the opposite context of like you know, kind of like making sure that you're not injured, right? The best ability is availability. Like yeah. being on the shelf with an injury sure. is going to help your consistency, but it's no matter the reason, it still applies either way. And I'll tell you what, man, it, it really is remarkable to see your growth from that point into what you're doing now, not only in terms of your running times, which I just mentioned, which are absolutely extraordinary, especially for somebody who, you know, you got a lot going on, you got a full-time job, you you got kid at home, you're running at 5 a.m., all that stuff. In addition to that, I loved how you bounced back from Boston this year. I, I was just <laughs> captivated by it because, you know, you, you run, you know, a month before Boston, you do the New York City half, you run 124. Yeah. So at that point, obviously you're feeling really good. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, so last year when I ran Coastal Delaware, I had run New York City half in 125, and I ran Coastal Delaware in three hours and 50 seconds. So, you know, my training was going really well this year. Um, I checked in with my coach Steve uh, with um, Telos Running. He he also. We went over my training in, it was in, obviously Boston is, is its own beast and you never know what you're going to get on that day. But the training was indicating that I was in that three hour range again. Right. And if I had some magic in Boston, there was a chance that I could possibly go under three. I had, that was my a goal to go under three. Um, and I was feeling great. I had no injuries. I had a great train, a great cycle training cycle. And, um, it was just like, I was ready, you know, and I was amped up and it was, it was Boston. And it was something that at this point I've been dreaming about for a couple of years. Um, I thought I'd be chasing, chasing a Boston qualifier until I was 65. And then last year it happened. So you have no idea how, how excited I was and amped up to be in Boston. And once I was there, it was like, for, for all of you that have been there, you know, this, um, for all of you who have not been there, this is this is why you want to be there. It's all of us runners together. We all get it. It's like Comic-Con for runners. It's just an amazing experience. You walk around just small talking with everybody that has on has on a celebration jacket or this pair of running shoes. And so I was just amped up to be there, right? And I'm cruising through the first 13 miles with my buddy, Larry, who's also, um, he was he was on my my training group he was in my training group last year and uh we're cruising through these miles and then i look at my watch at mile third at at the halfway point and we're right on target and i'm like we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna smash it today at 13.2 miles my leg seized up and i just at 13.1 larry told me to go ahead he said go you're cruising you're like you look great you're cruising at 13.2 miles, my legs seized up. I had to pull over, and Larry looked at me like, what happened? It was like I got a flat tire almost. 
freaking yeah. Larry. He had to <laughs> say <it's> not... <laughs> And and it's so funny. He's the funny he's the funniest guy. And uh so just the look on his face was like, What are you doing? <laughs> but he, he he kept going, he cruised. Um yeah, so that whole experience, I got to experience Boston. The first half of the race was amazing. I got to experience what it feels like to run well in Boston. And then I quickly learned what it feels like to run uh, hobbled in Boston. And it, I don't think it was the hills. I trained on the hills. It was just a super humid day. And I've cramped up in, I cramped up in Chicago in 2017. Um, I cramped up on my first New York City Marathon in 2013. So, I know what it is in Chicago. It happened at mile 23 or 24. So I could, I could push through the severe cramping. Um, my, my, every muscle in my body was seizing up, but I, but I knew I only had 15 minutes or 14 minutes or however, however long it was going to take to, and I could, I could get through it at that point. But when you're at mile 13 and your leg seizes up and then you start running again and the other leg seizes up, I just had to, I just had to, I gave it everything I could. I, I pushed all the way in when I had to stop. I stopped, but it was an amazing experience because I got to take in the crowds and I got to appreciate the the fans that are in Boston. It's they know running, they know what's going on. People on the side have it's like a first aid kit on the side of the road. This little this little old lady gave me like she said, "What do you need? Do you need Motrin? Do you need an Advil? Do you do you want some icy hot? Do you need?" And it was just like. <laughs> It was just like the the people and the whole experience. So I got to experience both sides of it in that in that one race. That's remarkable. And, and so you ran about ninety minutes the first right. half, and you ran for about two hours the second half. Came in at almost like three thirty on the on the yeah. button. And I was really fighting to stay under three thirty, and I think I ended up at three oh one at three. 301 or 02 so that was just the day that was just the way the day was going to go for me <laughs> I, I i was trying so hard down boylston street i was pushing and i was like i just under 330 and then three three thirty oh one or two or whatever it was <laughs> now let me ask you this then because this is something that you know not, not everyone can do this so you know, you you went into that race with very different expectations than what happened, and it would be really easy for you to be really bummed out about it, right? You spent a lot of time, a lot of physical, emotional, and mental equity getting ready for that race, but it seems like you rebounded very quickly and had a very Again, not that you were happy necessarily with how the race turned out, but it seemed like you were accepting of how it turned out. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just the way the day was going to go. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't go back and change it. I couldn't go take more assault tab before the race. That's just, it's not what happened that day. And, you know, I had to move on. I, I knew that I needed, I did know that if I was okay to run, if I wasn't injured, um, if I could start, if I could get a couple of good runs in over the next few weeks that I was still trained, um, all that hard work hadn't just disappeared because I ran 26 miles. It was, the training was real. Um, so I just wanted to, I really wanted to test my training. I didn't feel like I got a, I mean, some people might disagree and say that cramping up and uh, cramping up is an indication that I wasn't prepared for that day, but 
I was ready to, I was ready to test my fitness again, um, a couple weeks afterwards and really just wanted to, I wanted to prove to myself that I can still do hard things. And that that day was just, it was just a outlier. You know, that's not, that's not, and, and don't get me wrong, 330, I, I would have loved that when I first started running. I, I'd take that, um, and it was a beautiful day, just finishing the marathon or just being able to get out to run is an, an amazing day. Um, but I knew that I had more left, and, and I didn't really, I wasn't able to physically give it my all in Boston. So I, I did want to see where I, where I, where my fitness was. Now, what's on the calendar now? Um, definitely not. Well, definitely not a, a hilly course because that Rhinebeck course coming out of Boston and I want wanting to test my fitness, that Rhinebeck course definitely did that. Um, there's a ton of elevation gain in that and it's a, it's a finish uphill. So, um, I'd like to go for another flat course. I am getting married in the fall. So a fall marathon is not it's not written in the calendar yet, but it is, uh, the idea is bouncing around maybe a, maybe a bachelor party marathon weekend or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) There's, uh, there are a couple in early September that I have, I have my eye on. That's awesome. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. I feel like I could talk to you forever. In some ways, we have talked forever. This is about an hour and 15 minutes in. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Matt, this has been an absolute Matt, pleasure. thank you so much. I, I mean, I listen all the time, and it's just such a huge thrill um, to be able to connect with you. And uh, the whole Instagram running community is just such an amazing, amazing and inspiring place. So um, thank you to you, and thank you to all of everybody that connects with me on Instagram. I, I run love uh, NY. And it's it's just such a blessing to have all of uh, this running community in my life now. So thank you, everybody. And thank you, Matt. There you go. Hey, well, if I, if I ever meet up with the mayor of Central Park, I'll make sure I'll throw an invite your way, too. We'll make, we'll make, we'll make it a group, a group thing. Oh, for sure. Definitely. I'll, I'll be there. All right, man. Thanks, Thanks so much. Once again, Greg, thank you for coming on the show. This was so much fun, as always. I'm just blessed to have wonderful guests on this show. What can I say? I mean, this guy, I mean, can you even imagine? Can you even imagine turning around your life the way Greg did? It's just, it just really is remarkable. I love these kinds of stories. I really, really do. I think part of the reason I love them is because I'm not convinced I'd be able to do it. And it's inspiring to hear somebody who has done it. Because I feel like if I was in Greg's shoes 10 years ago, I don't know if, I don't know if I would have pulled myself out. But hearing him do it, it really is uh, exciting and it's just gratifying to see someone who's such a nice person be able to turn their life around. So thank you, Greg, for coming on the show. Thank you, Mercury Mile. Thank you, Megaton Coffee, for sponsoring this episode and so many of the Rambling Runner podcast episodes. If you haven't checked them out yet, please do. MercuryMile.com and MegatonCoffee.com. You will not be disappointed. I know because a lot of listeners have checked them out. And you all tell me about it all the time, which I love. Thank you for showing them some love. So, again, thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. So, have a great day and happy running. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest escapes these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.